Welcome to Christ Church Anglican. We hope that you were blessed by today's sermon. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Today is a great feast day. It's the end of the great 50 days of Easter. Uh, 50 days ago, we remembered the resurrection of Christ from the tomb. And he spent 40 days with his people following that. And then he ascended into heaven, taking his humanity with him into heaven so that God and man are forever united together. And what happened with Adam and Eve can never happen again. And he told them then, wait for the gift of the Holy Spirit. Wait for the promise of the Father. And then you're going to be my witnesses. And so for 10 days they prayed and they fasted. And on this day, the Holy Spirit came in a resounding way. And 3,000 people became followers of Christ on that very day. And the Holy Spirit is the gift that we need. You cannot be a Christian without the Holy Spirit. We cannot be a church of Jesus Christ without the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the difference between being an artificial tree with artificial fruit and being a real tree bearing real fruit. It is the Holy Spirit that makes that possible. So we give thanks this day for the gift of the Holy Spirit. And I want to dwell on in this next few minutes what Jesus called the Holy Spirit in today's gospel. This is John 14, 16 through 17. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. When Jesus promised his disciples that he would ask the Father to send them a helper, he gave this helper the name Spirit of Truth. At the same time, however, he warned them the world could not be, would not be able to receive the spirit of truth. And scripture gives us two reasons for this. First of all, from the time that men turned away from God in rebellion, they have been unwilling to accept the truth which exposes their unrighteous deeds. Therefore, we're told in Romans 1.18, they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. What does that mean? They go headlong in unrighteousness in order to drown out the call of truth. Another way is if whenever you sober up, you feel guilty for getting drunk, then the devil's solution is, well, then you better stay drunk. This second reason the world cannot accept the spirit of truth is that rebellion against God has exposed humanity to the domination of the God of this age, Satan, who deceives the whole world, as we read in Revelation. And Satan deceives people into calling good evil and evil good. Have you noticed lately how much that happens? Well, deception is what Satan's about, and he's causing people to believe things that are not true. It's the primary weapon that Satan relies on to keep humanity under his control. That's the reason many of us moved on from our former denomination because it was playing right into Satan's hand 
and promoting deception. And see, once Satan's ability to deceive is stripped away, he really has nothing to offer anyone except a place with him in the lake of eternal fire. And scripture tells us this is his and his followers' ultimate fate. So obviously Satan doesn't want to be left with that as his feature, (laughs) okay? He needs to have another selling point, and he does that by calling what is false true. Throughout history, mankind has never been able to produce a satisfactory definition of truth. And that has led us to being wide open to Satan's deception. But on the other hand, the Bible gives a threefold answer that protects us from deception. First, Jesus said, I am truth. Second, in praying to God the Father, he said, your word is truth. And third, John tells us, the Holy Spirit is truth. Okay? So in the spiritual realm, there are three coordinates of truth. Jesus, the scripture, and the Holy Spirit. You remember when the History Channel was nothing but Nazi uh, documentaries? I used to love to watch it then. <laughs> Colleen used to say, are you on the Nazi Channel again? Uh, and one of the things that was, it, some of the things that intrigued me were the way that they could find a, uh, like in, in France, they could find a radio that was sending information to Europe, I mean to, to England, by three coordinates, you know, how they could do that. Well, that's kind of the same thing here. Uh, except they're the good guys. There are three coordinates that help us to arrive at absolute truth. And there is absolute truth. And there is absolute falsehood. Uh, It's not all relative, okay? Some people say, oh, truth is relative. Uh, You know, speak your truth, you know. Eh, Nonsense. Uh, that, That speak your opinion, speak your experience. But truth does not depend upon us. As uh, one bishop once said, if truth was only held on to by one woman in a rocker on her porch in Scotland, it would still be true. So we have these three coordinates that allow us to arrive at what truth is. Uh, There are three questions that come from these concerning that we need to ask concerning any issue. Does it represent Jesus as he truly is? This means we need to know Jesus, okay? This means we need to read scripture. This needs, especially the gospels. And this means we need to pray, okay? Is it in harmony with scripture? Okay, that's the second question you need to ask. Is it consistent with what scripture teaches? Because God is not going to tell you to do something that contradicts holy scripture. And then he wrote the book. You know, it's not like... um, one day he woke up and went, what was I thinking when I said adultery was a sin? You know, uh, you know, he said it was a sin. It's still a sin because God never changes. Uh, and then the third question is, does the Holy Spirit bear his witness? All right. So before we can accept what is presented to us as truth, all three coordinates must be in place. Jesus, the scripture, and the Holy Spirit. Now, I've seen people who use one but not all of these, and they get in all kinds of trouble, and they blame God for their problems. I mean, the Holy Spirit has been blamed for more bad behavior uh, than, uh, 
It's just amazing. And it wasn't the Holy Spirit's fault. It was that they didn't take the time to check the coordinates. Uh, you know, there are a lot of spirits in the world, but there's only one Holy Spirit. So just because you feel that you're being led by a spirit, you need to check Scripture and Christ to make sure it's the Holy Spirit. Um, I knew, I had, I, some of you know this story, but there was a woman in a previous parish who came to me and she was angry with God because uh, she said that the Holy Spirit had led her to have an affair with a married man and, uh, and he decided to go back to his wife and children. Uh, and how could God have done that to her? Obviously, if she had asked these three questions, she would have known it wasn't the Holy Spirit who was leading her to do that. She also would have known that it was what we call sin and to flee from it. Uh, that's what I mean. The Holy Spirit gets blamed for all kinds of things that aren't the Holy Spirit's fault. And it's really taking God's name in vain when we do that. So, in the threefold presentation of truth, the particular function of the Holy Spirit is to bear witness. Okay? It is the Spirit who bears witness, says John. The Holy Spirit bears witness to Jesus as the eternal Son of God who shed his blood on the cross as the all-sufficient sacrifice for our sins. And then the Holy Spirit also bears witness to the truth and authority of Scripture. As Paul wrote to the Thessalonians, For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power, and in the Holy Spirit, and in much assurance. There can be no compromise between the Holy Spirit, who is the Spirit of truth, and Satan, who, according to Jesus is a liar and the father of lies. This was dramatically demonstrated in the early church when Ananias and Sapphira lied about the money that they had offered to the church. It's really a funny story, although they both die. Okay. Uh, so the, Ananias and Sapphira were members of this early church in Jerusalem. And uh, they sell some property and... They say, we're giving all the money to the church. Well, they didn't really give all the money to the church. They kept part of it back. Now, Peter uh, picks up on the fact that this is a lie from the Holy Spirit. And uh, he charges Ananias with lying, not merely to men, but to the Holy Spirit himself, lying to God. And what Peter says basically is, look, it was your property. You could do with it whatever you wanted to. When you sold it, it was your profit, your money. You could do with it whatever you wanted to. So why do you come here and tell us that you gave it all to the church when you didn't? At that point, Ananias drops dead. And so they drag him out. And then uh, the next thing we know, Sapphira, his wife, is coming in. And Peter goes through the same thing with her, and she drops dead. And they drag her body out. Rightly defined, the sin which Ananias and Sapphira were guilty of was hypocrisy, okay? Religious pretense. They were pretending to be more generous and more committed to the Lord than they really were. They could give anything they wanted. It didn't matter. What mattered was they were lying about it. Jesus reserved his strongest words for hypocrites. 
condemnation for sin in the religious leaders of the day. Seven times in Matthew 23, he said to them, woe to you, hypocrites. So what's hypocrisy? Well, the English words, hypocrite, hypocrisy, come from the Greek word, which means actor. Okay, this is the essence of hypocrisy, putting on a religious act. Probably no sin is more common among religious people than hypocrisy. In fact, some forms of religion almost demand it. But when some people in a religious building, they just get all kinds of weird. And it's, it's this weird kind of hypocritical spiritual thing they're doing. I remember back in seminary, and of course in seminary, everyone is so self-absorbed, it's just nauseating. But there were some people who would come into chapel, and it's like they just took all the spiritual cramp when they came in. And uh, it just took over. And it was like they felt required to put on this religious mask. And actually different religions require masks of different kinds, but few allow people to be their real selves. And that is why it is so important that Christianity is not a religion, but a relationship. And we must continue to stress this again and again. Christianity is a relationship. We pray it is a relationship where we take the mask off and leave hypocrisy at the door. The God of the Bible has no time for hypocrites. This comes out very clearly in the story of Job. Job's, most of you know the story, but in the Old Testament, it's probably the oldest book of the Old Testament, actually. But Job um, was rich, had lots of kids, uh, and Satan one day says to God, so uh, look at Job. No, God said to Satan, look at Job there. Isn't he great? You know, and Satan said, eh, I, I can cause him to curse you. And God said, well, just try. So he gave him permission to go mess with Job. And he did. He took Job's kids. They all died. He took his wealth away, his land away, everything he owned. All he was left with was a wife who said, curse God and die. And, uh, you know, thanks for the support, sweetie. Uh, but, so then he has three fin friends who come along. And <laughs> they just started spilling out platitudes, you know. Well, God always blesses the righteous. They never suffer unjustly. So something must be unrighteous about you. And God always judges the wicked. They never prosper. So there must be something wicked about you. But, of course, the facts of history demonstrate that this is not always true. <laughs> it's just religious talk. On the other hand, Job was completely frank. He said, in effect, God is not treating me fairly. I have done nothing to deserve all this, but even if he kills me, I will still trust him. Now, in Job 42.7, the Lord reveals his estimation of Job and his friends. And he says to Eliphaz, my wrath is aroused against you and your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Okay? So even though, I mean, what God is praising Job for being honest and for not being a hypocrite. And although Job never gets the answer, uh, he does 
uh, see a vision of God that uh, is so overwhelming that it's beyond any question he can ask. And he, everything is restored to him, uh, including his wife. So <laughs> I'm hoping she, she saw that vision too and came around. Then there's another person from the Bible we can look at, and that's King David about hypocrisy. At a certain point in his career, the Bible says, when it was the season for kings to be out in battle, uh, he was home. He was being a little slothful, a little lazy, and uh, he committed two terrible sins. First, he looked across uh, the street, and up on the roof, there was a beautiful woman there named Bathsheba, and he immediately started lusting after her. And uh, she was the wife of his, one of his generals, Uriah the Hittite. And so he wound up seducing her, sleeping with her, and she got pregnant. So he said, well, how am I going to cover this up? So he ordered Uriah to come home. <laughs> and uh, thinking, well, he'll sleep with his wife, and he'll think it's his child. And so all great and good. Old Testament is racy stuff, guys. Um, so he tries to get uh, Uriah to sleep with Uriah's wife. And Uriah's like, I can't possibly take that comfort and that intimacy when my men are still fighting and I am here to serve my king. So he kept sleeping outside the king's door this whole time. Uh, and uh, he never would sleep with his wife. And so when he went back to the battle, uh, David sent directions that Uriah should go lead out in battle, but then the other general rules without Uriah knowing it were to pull back. So Uriah had no protection and could be uh, basically killed by the enemy. Um, and uh, it's, it's an awful moment for David. It's, it's when he really loses much of his anointing. Uh, David apparently, though, got away with this. He still went through his regular forms of worship. He still carried out his duties as king. He still lived in the royal palace. Outwardly, nothing had changed until God's messenger, Nathan, the prophet, confronted David with his sin. And at that moment, David's eternal destiny hung in the balance. And by the grace of God, David made the right response. All he said was, is, I have sinned. I have sinned. And he came face to face with something that only the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Truth, could reveal to him. It was not just that he committed a sinful act, but that he had committed it because of the awful evil power of inherited sinfulness that dwells in every descendant of Adam, including you and me. That's one reason why we might as well be honest, <laughs> because we all know where we stand. Verse 6 of Psalm 51 that David wrote after this experience says, Behold, you desire truth in the inward parts something he learned from that experience. Even after his sin, David had continued to go through all the outward forms. But now there was a gap, a vast gap, between the outward pious forms and his heart. And what does the Lord look at? 
He doesn't look at the outward pious forms. He looks at the heart, okay? There was this gap. He had become a hypocrite, an actor playing a part which did not correspond to what was in his heart. And there was only one remedy for this, honest confession and wholehearted repentance. And that's one truth that runs through the whole Bible. God will never compromise with sin. Many Christians today are speaking and praying about revival. I pray about it a lot. I want to see our country have revival, be spiritually renewed and refreshed. But they often overlook the fact that there's one barrier to revival that can never be bypassed. Sin. Until sin is dealt with, true revival can never come. And there is only one way to deal with sin. Proverbs tells us, he who covers his sin will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. So God's remedy is twofold, confess and then forsake. It's seldom easy to confess our sins. We don't want to admit it. Uh, Although, you know, what Jesus promised was that the Holy Spirit would be in us. So do we really think we're, we're... pulling anything over on the Holy Spirit not to confess our sins? Of course the Holy Spirit knows what we've been up to. And there is nothing more wonderful than the renewal and refreshment one experiences when one has confessed their sins and received forgiveness. As John says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And it's not enough merely to confess. We must also forsake. We must make a resolute determination to not to continue to commit the sin we have confessed. Okay? That doesn't mean you're never going to commit it again. But it means that's not the road you're on. There's a difference between occasionally making a mistake and being on the road of mistake. Uh, where you call good evil and evil good. So when we sin then, we once again repent, confess, and forsake. We make a resolute determination not to continue to commit the sin we have confessed. And we must follow the succinct advice that Daniel gave to King Nebuchadnezzar. Break off your sin by righteousness. Okay? Between righteousness and sin, there is no middle ground. All unrighteousness is sin. Okay, Whatever is not righteous is sinful. Here's the deal, guys. We tend to act like there's some big middle ground between God and the devil. There's nothing between God and the devil. You're either pointed towards the devil or you're pointed towards God. As someone said, we're born on a battlefield. Okay, We're not born in neutral. There's no neutral territory, C.S. Lewis said. You're either directed towards God or towards the devil. One or the other. So choose wisely which direction you want to go in. Because between righteousness and sin, there is no middle ground. When we bemoan the unrighteous state of our country and call upon God to act, we fail to see that God is waiting for us to act. Okay? Second Chronicles 7.14 If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin 
and heal their land. Notice something here. It didn't hit, this didn't hit me till a couple of years ago. If who? Did it say if the people in Hollywood or if the people in Washington? No. It says if my people, my people who are called by my name, humble themselves and pray and seek my face, turn from their wicked ways. Who needs to repent? You and I do. We hold the key to revival in this country. Think about that. We are the ones who either hold back revival or open the gates. I pray we're all convicted of sin humble ourselves and we turn away from wickedness so if you're face to face with a difficult decision if this message has caused you to question things in your life that you've been unthinkingly accepting or if it has confronted you with some area of secret disobedience then that is the Holy Spirit convicting you of that sin Please don't turn away from him. Because when you turn away from him, you're turning to the devil. Open up to the spirit of truth. Confess. Then forsake that part of your old life. And God, through the Holy Spirit, is ready and willing to come to your help to restore you to your place in Christ and to fill you with new life. Amen. Thanks for tuning in. For more information, feel free to visit us online at ccanglican.com. We hope you will join us again soon.